0: Good morning and welcome to Her Turn, a program of news and information by and about women. I'm Frannie Lyons. Today, a high school senior has just received a college scholarship to play football, and it's a girl. We also talk about the first women to run the Boston Marathon, as well as hear from one of the founders of the Women's Studies about the future of the discipline. So stay tuned for all this and more on the Sunday, April 23rd edition of Her Turn. Fifty years ago, 20-year-old Katherine Switzer made history by being the first woman to officially enter and run in the Boston Marathon. It was 1967, a time when women were often excluded from participating in competitive and professional sports. Catherine broke the barriers of gender inequality by taking part in the race, challenging the idea that women were too fragile to participate in these events. During the race, the marathon's director attempted to stop Catherine by jumping on her, trying to rip off her official marathon bib. The attack was captured on camera a portrait of a woman defying the sexist norms of the times. Despite the assault, Catherine refused to be intimidated and she pushed through to the end of the race. She showed the world that women were equally capable of finishing the race, even in the face of adversity. This made Catherine an icon steering her into a career of advocacy for women in sports. Catherine's bib number, the number 261, became a rallying cry for female runners. She created a running circuit that launched women's only races in 27 countries, which led to the first women's Olympic marathon in 1984. She also created a nonprofit to support running groups for women and was a commentator for world championships for many years. Now, 50 years later, Catherine makes history again by running the Boston Marathon for the ninth time, at 70 years of age. She is still very active in advocacy and running, and continues to be an inspiration for women everywhere. The Boston Athletic Association is retiring the number 261 this year in Catherine's honor. Since its beginning, Football has been dominated by men and has one of the highest glass ceilings for female players. Now, Becca Longo has become the first female football player to receive an NCAA scholarship to play for a Division II level school or higher. Longo didn't start playing football until her freshman year of high school, but soon impressed everyone with her accurate place kicking. Longo says she knows it won't be easy being the only female on the football team at Colorado's Adams State University. She is ready for the challenge and says she wants to show younger girls that you can achieve your dreams no matter what anyone thinks. Roughly a dozen women have played college football, but none of them have been granted an NCAA scholarship before Longo. Several New England Patriot, Patriots players decided to skip a visit to the White House this week citing President Trump's disparaging comments about women. It is customary for NFL Super Bowl champions to meet the president in the weeks following their win. However, several Patriots players, including Alan Branch, Devin McCurdy, and Chris Young, publicly stated they did not support some of Trump's actions before and during the campaign. Some players and fans released a video to YouTube called Standing Pats, celebrating the players' decision to skip the White House visit. Branch and Long both cited their commitment to setting positive examples for their children as a reason not to go to Washington, D.C. with their teammates. The Patriots' White House visit came in the wake of Trump's support of former Fox News anchor Bill O'Reilly. The New York Times reported that Fox News and O'Reilly paid over $13 million to five women who accused O'Reilly of sexual harassment and verbal abuse during his 20-year tenure at the network. Trump called O'Reilly a, quote, good person, end quote, and stated that he did not think O'Reilly committed any wrongdoing. Although O'Reilly maintained his innocence, he was fired from Fox on April 19th after over 60 companies withdrew their advertisements from his show's time slot. CNBC reported that O'Reilly may receive up to $25 million in severance pay from Fox News.
1: change you do, you're trying to
2: wear me down baby I'm not playing games for you, what you looking for,
1: did you lose your way?
0: This past Tuesday, the Navy and Marine Corps announced the new regulations prohibiting the distribution of any, quote, intimate image used to humiliate, harass, or threaten that person, end quote. These new regulations were triggered by a scandal in March where intimate photographs of female personnel were distributed in a Facebook group to hundreds of Marines. The photographs were accompanied by identifying information such as name, rank, and more. According to the Stars and Stripes, a newspaper operated by the Department of Defense, 15 active-duty military personnel and 12 civilians will likely be charged for felony-level criminal activity for distributing intimate images without consent. Another 29 people will be charged with misdemeanors or face non-judicial consequences. Marine Corps Assistant Commandant General Glenn Walters believes that, quote, online harassment of female Marines is symptomatic of a larger issue, end quote. He hopes to, quote, change the culture of the Marine Corps, end quote, so that th- these behaviors might start correcting themselves. Last week, Leleda Gee, Wednesday's host of WORT's A Public Affair, talked with Danielle McGuire, historian and author of the book At the Dark End of the Street?, Black Women, Rape, and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. Maguire begins her book with a quote from a Swedish scientist who wrote a book on race in the 1940s. He said, Sex is the principle around which the whole structure of segregation is organized. In this excerpt from their conversation, Leleda begins by asking Danielle why she used that quote. think that
2: the roots of white supremacy lay in women's bodies in many ways, that the whole structure of slavery and segregation is rooted in changing the law from paternal hierarchy Mm -hmm. to a maternal hierarchy so that the children born to slave women are not the daughters of their fathers Mm -hmm. because they're so often white men. They're only the daughters of their mothers, And then their mother status becomes their status instead of the father's free status becoming their status. Right. So in order to recreate slavery again and again and again, Mm -hmm. it's rooted in the reproductive capacity of black women. And And so sex is really important to that. And not just sex, but sexual violence and the access to black women's bodies. It's like the making of white supremacy and enslavement.
3: I know when you look at the tendencies of rape, most ethnic groups rape interracially, yeah. white men rape everybody and um, not all white men, men, white men who right. rape, rape across the board. And I wonder if it's still this sense of entitlement to brown body. Rape is higher for black women. Rape is higher for native women. Still this entitlement to, I don't have to ask for access to your body that mm-hmm. impacts that realm of rape for white
2: men. I've always agreed with Fannie Lou Hamer when she said a black woman's body was never hers alone. That black women's bodies are seen as everybody's. They belong to everybody. Mm -hmm. And that includes men of all colors. But that concept of their bodies not being their own, I think
3: is again, rooted in the slave experience in the United States. I was reading about Fannie Lou in your book and about her lineage that her grandmother who was a slave had 23 children and that's that's a separate issue by itself i mean that is a perfect example of breeding that she had 23 children and it said that 20 of the 23 were products of rape and i want to even just maybe underscore that by saying that was the rape by the white man because i also considered forced breeding with black men rape because the women didn't have a choice around that so i think it would be even fair to say all 23 of them were products of rape mm-hmm. but when oh, they talk yeah. about i think it was fanny lou hamer's mother and i love this woman and reading a little bit more about her in a different way in your book made me understand even better why she was sick and tired of being sick and tired
2: her mother really worked to protect her in the fields. and if you remember she carried a pistol in her lunch bucket that sounds like
3: my grandmother she used to carry a <laughs> gun and an ice pick
2: think about that. I think a lot of black women during those years, especially in the deep South, but it could be anywhere, did what they had to do to protect themselves and to protect their bodily integrity. I've heard lots of stories like that from older black women, you know, and they laugh about it because it seems so subversive, but really it, it was about survival.
3: And I wonder even if it was more about their survival or more even about their kids as well. I've been sharing a little bit about my own survival being a victim of childhood sexual abuse. But as I began to do my own family research, I discovered that my daughter is the first woman in my lineage on my mom's side that was not a victim of sexual assault since we left the shores of Africa. And when wow. you when you look at that And then you have any kind of understanding about historical trauma. I believe Mm -hmm. trauma changes us at the DNA level Uh and we're passing these things forward. And then you're looking at black women who lead the charts in every stress related disease, heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, like every stress related disease. It's just like, we are still impacted by the residuals of the trauma of the sexual demolition of Mm -hmm. black women to this day.
2: There's new studies on this idea of epigenetic inheritance, the ways in which violence changes your genes and the legacies of trauma and what that does to people from a cellular standpoint. It's fascinating and it's something that needs further study, especially when we think about sexual violence, right? Yes, Because I think the cycle of violence has broken with your daughter is Amazing. And we need to celebrate that. Thank you. Um, But that long history, we also Mm -hmm. need to
3: reconcile. And for our listeners, I need to be clear that that was a conscious decision, which came with sacrifice because I determined I was not going to be a part of that same cycle to carry that forward. In my lineage, I wanted something different for my daughter. It didn't just happen. I made it happen. Mm -hmm. I decided it, I willed it, and I sacrificed for it to happen. And those are things that we need to do in order to protect our children, in order to create a new reality for ourselves.
2: You encapsulated in that sentence, like, so well, what women like Rosa Parks and Reese Taylor and Gertrude Perkins and Betty G. Owens and all these women that I talk about in my book, the same kind of like line in the sand that they drew mm-hmm. when they were saying enough, we are going to stand up for black womanhood. We are mm-hmm. going to defend black women's bodily integrity, and we are going to make it a civil rights issue.
0: Yes. Even
2: if no one else will.
0: That was Lilita G., not gee my mistake wednesday's host of wort's a public affair and danielle McGuire, author of the book at the end of the street black women rape and resistance a new history of the civil rights movement from rosa parks to the rise of black power As in so many fields, women in academia have had to struggle for what they have achieved. During what has come to be known as the second wave of feminism, lots of women activists demand more. First, they started a few women's studies classes, a women's studies program, then a whole department, and now a gender and women's studies department exists at the University of Madison. But the department is under attack. From the outside, it is being asked to shrink its program. From the inside, some are wondering whether the study of women even matters anymore. Does it? Her Turn reporter Arlene Zoucha brings us the thoughts of one of the early mothers of women's studies.
1: The year was 1968. Barbara White had just received a letter that rejected her from a prime East Coast University job solely because she was a woman. That wouldn't do. Susan Friedman, now a professor of English and Gender and Women's Studies, was there in 1968. She and others came together to do something about it. By 1974, they were meeting weekly, and eventually, without materials and without much support, women's studies began. They had to fight to establish the category of woman. How did they justify this when they were called in front of the regents? By explaining something women have in common. Menstruation.
4: Each of us, somebody in literature, somebody in politics, somebody in history, somebody in art, I mean, in all the different fields, we each talked about the importance of understanding menstruation in our own fields. But the regents were shocked. <laughs> to talk about women's blood and menstruation in front of the regents on the top floor of Van Heys building, There was just this dead silence, but we were, you know, in our chutzpah, we were going to prove that how important, how academically legitimate interdisciplinarity was. That you cannot understand menstruation if you don't understand the biology, the psychology, the literature, the art, the anthropology the history, and so forth and so on.
1: That was just the beginning. Friedman herself had no role models when she was coming up in academia.
4: To get a Ph.D., I was not required to read a single woman writer, not one. I asked if I could please write about Virginia Woolf for my preliminary examinations, uh, knowing that the only faculty member who taught any Virginia Woolf was a man who was a drunk and fell asleep in class. I'll tell you the story of my Ph.D. advisor who actually taught a woman, writer, H.D., in his class. But when I set up a debate in my dissertation between H.D. and Freud, he pounded the desk. How can you put that silly woman up against Freud and come down on her side? He actually did that. Friedman did eventually win tenure. I only got tenure here by one vote in my department. I was told that this was part of the discussion in the meeting. I shouldn't have been told this, but I was. The person said, you were a woman, you wrote about a woman, the editor at your press was a woman, and your reader was a woman. Too many goddamn women. Friedman says many women personally benefit,
1: as does understanding as a whole, when women's experiences are taken into account. She gives this example from one art student.
4: She wanted to register her upsetness at the stretch marks on her body after her baby was born. So in order to do this, she ate a lot of pasta so that she had a little belly bump. And she made paper out of her baby's diapers. I mean, clean ones, please. And she plastered it over her spaghetti baby bump. And then she wove little pieces of gold and silver, leaves and seeds and copper strands where the stretch marks were. And she produced an abstract art. And she never told anybody what the origin of this piece was. She came to the course Women in the Arts and she told us all about her feelings about her body, how the pregnancy took it over, the stretch marks, how she had trouble adjusting to it, how she used art as a way of coming to terms with those feelings, how the art was entirely generated through her love of form, her love of materials, and her experience. In the art department, it was conceptual art.
1: Establishing a women's studies department required overthrowing the university as we know it, says Friedman, while at the same time functioning successfully within it.
4: Not an easy task. To establish the category of woman or women in the academy required a paradigm shift, specifically a feminist paradigm shift, a political shift. We argued that women had been either absent or trivialized or maligned or distorted as a subject of inquiry across all the disciplines in the academy. The beginnings of the program were fraught with struggles and good times. I could sit here and remember how we fought with some considerable bitterness. I mean bitterness about the color of the fabric of the chairs. (laughs) The argument between purple and chartreuse yellow was fierce. We could sit here and remember the chair's decision to remove the kitchen sink from the staff person's office, which led to a major rebellion that there had been no vote on removing the kitchen sink. (laughs) Reminiscing can lead to nostalgia. Nostalgia is sometimes good for the soul, good for community, good for friends. I don't knock nostalgia. But nostalgia can be self-indulgent. It can be self-hearizing. It can be a way of shutting up younger generations. Nostalgia can be a wet blanket to the future, to the absolute necessity for feminism and for women's studies to continue evolving, changing, meeting the needs of the present and the future.
1: Friedman learned a lot in those early days. Early women activists were not shy to tell Friedman what they needed.
4: We don't want any consciousness raising in this class. What we want is good, rigorous, hard academic material. We already understand all the political points, they told me. Uh, We don't need you to to do all that. What we need is information, analysis, frameworks. We want what academics can do. And then my other students, the ones who hadn't ever heard of any of these ideas whatsoever, they wanted touchy-feely consciousness raising. And so that was my first shock and first difficulty as a teacher Recognizing that part of what we have to do as activists in the academic setting is to work in completely rigorous, open-minded, always open to questioning kinds of ways, using our skills as researchers, giving students the tools that they need to go out in the world. Here's some of the feedback Friedman got from African-American women. We're very interested in what you're doing and we've seen your syllabus and it's very nice that you have one day of the semester on black women, but you're not getting it. You need to integrate issues on black women in every single section of the syllabus. So when you talk about advertisements, you need to talk about black women. I mean, they were focused on black women, but you can see the point that they were making in 1975 about the need to integrate issues of race all the way through every single issue that you talked about, that you don't have a token day. As all these examples show, says Friedman, the category woman was in flux from the very beginning. We understood that in the famous words of Charlotte Bunch in the early 1970s, you can't just add women to the pot and stir. Once you add women to any kind of academic subject The whole stew changes. For instance, the ideas of transgender were present from the start. Actually, in the 1970s, Andrea Dworkin wrote about how we don't have two sexes. We have a spectrum of sexes. And when I'm teaching Virginia Woolf, these discussions of the third sex and determinant sex, trap soul theories, all the kind of sexology of the early 20th century, which Virginia Woolf comes out of that background in many ways, we're also discussing these issues. And so in 2015, there's a new way of thinking about it. There's a new kind of discourse around transgender today that's suited to our own time. But I think that if we take a historical perspective and indeed a cross-cultural perspective on these issues, we're going to find that there are many, many other ways of thinking through how, in fact, our brains and therefore computers work in binary terms. And yet there's always, in any kind of uh, binary thinking, there's always this attempt to undo the binary, to transcend it, to think things through outside one and two. But Friedman expresses
1: some concern that some of today's activists have a destructive way of looking at the history.
4: A sense of before and after, a kind of hidden assumption that the field must always engage in being better and better and better through progress, that our ideas become better. And this means older ideas are old fashioned and passe. We don't need them anymore. Been there, done that. We don't need women. Some people even say we don't need feminism.
1: Learning about the past can help, says Friedman. The term intersectionality may be new, but the idea isn't.
4: The category woman and women that we fought so hard to establish very quickly got very complex and open to much discussion, leading up to the concept, which is now kind of Women's Studies 101 for everybody in the field, the concept of intersectionality. The integration of ever more Identity categories into feminist analysis from race and class to colonialism and sexuality, national origin, migration, disability, caste, and so forth. And as in my new work, I am working on how to integrate religion into notions of intersectionality. All of this was part of the vitality of women's studies, its growth and its ever changing formations, and for that, I say, yay, that is what has to happen.
1: One of the more recent battles was
4: renaming the department from women's studies to gender and
1: women's studies. At some universities, the whole department fell apart because of these battles. But at UW-Madison, Friedman says a strong foundation was there, despite differences of opinion.
4: The draft of the new mission statement for our department, the word women did not appear at all. It wasn't in the statement anywhere. Mind you, the statement has been, revised, and there was quite, <laughs> there was quite um, a, a brouhaha about creative tension, as we might say, around that issue. But it is very significant that the word women did not appear when to establish women as a category for analysis, however complex that category becomes and needs to be, it was pretty shocking.
1: Women's issues are broad and complex and shouldn't be stereotyped, says Friedman.
4: There are many, many other aspects for women's experience that are not connected to who it is they are in terms of gender or sexuality. This was my lesson in editing contemporary women's writing that we found many, many articles coming in about women writers where the women writers were thinking about everything under the sun and not necessarily oppression. But she also doesn't believe it helpful to wish for a totally gender-free world. I remember, for example, the moments the two times, I pushed my babies out the birth canal. I remember those moments like they are, I mean, etched forever. I remember the physical feelings, the emotion. I just really remember those moments. To me, those moments are very much tied to the word woman. I don't know how, I mean, a world that's only no gender whatsoever doesn't give me a language for what happens at the moment of birth, In other words, there are certain points in a person's life when the body they're in, the gender it's assigned, or whatever, come very much to the fore, and other moments when it feels completely irrelevant. It's not what you want to think about. You you don't want to be defined entirely in terms of it. So it's that fluidity about situational identity that I am more interested in than a kind of notion, oh, I wish the world were a world in which there were no men and women that we didn't think in binary terms and that everybody is simply human.
1: We forget the category woman at our peril, says Friedman. Although here in this country, the category is being rightfully challenged
4: and complicated, it is still important around the globe. So in many parts of the world, girls' education, women's education might be at the top of the list. Other parts of the world, it might be clean water and food. It might be basic health care. It might be security issues. How we define in Madison, Wisconsin, and how our students define the number one agenda issues we want to talk about and do research on is not going to be the same as it is in Tanzania, as it is in Syria, as it is in Afghanistan, as it is in India.
1: The Gender and Women's Studies Department is still struggling to survive. Friedman has this advice.
4: I think we should beware of any orthodoxies, any fixed knowledges. We should keep the field open, challenging, debating. Instead of a before and after, we should think about networks of knowledge, palimpsests of knowledge, layers of knowledge, intersections of knowledge, and vast reaching out. Think about what we share and also how we differ. Susan Friedman is a professor of English and Gender and
1: Women's Studies who teaches at the University of Madison. Her talk at last year's 40th anniversary of the department was entitled, Looking Back, Stepping Forward. For her turn, I'm Arlene Zalcha. In a city-
0: today's show include cnn.com theadvocate.com espn.com cnbc usa today wort's a public affair today's show was produced by kathy lynn and sandy janigold amber walker pushed our buttons as the on-air engineer other contributors include arlene zoucha amber walker sadie minobi minji wang and franny lyons Now, stay tuned for two and a half hours of Women in Music and Culture on Her Infinite Variety with host Steph Stringer.
2: WRT thanks its listener sponsors and Frank Productions and True Endeavors, presenting Grammy Award winning.